Well, good morning. Good morning. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. We are going to be finishing Mark chapter 8 this morning, and we're going to be talking about taking up our crosses. That's not a common phrase outside of the church, take up your cross. Every so often you'll hear it, uh, especially in an older country song, but but it's generally speaking only something you hear in the church because we don't have crucifixion the way that they did in Jesus' day. It was the execution method of the Roman Empire because if you are a conquering empire, you want a public and brutal display of your authority. Did anybody see Jojo Rabbit this last year? I don't normally recommend movies, and so if you watch this movie and are horrified, I apologize. But it's about a little boy named Jojo who has an imaginary friend who happens to be Adolf Hitler. Now, I have no idea how they got that movie made. Can you imagine being in the... uh, the executive's office, and the guy comes in and says, hey, I'd like to make a movie. Well, it's great. What's it about? It's about a little boy, and he's got an imaginary friend. I like it so far. What's his imaginary friend? Is he a bunny? Is he a a giant uh, CGI elephant? No, he's Hitler. Hmm. How did this guy get in here? But in the movie, one of the things that they show towards the end of, of the Nazi regime is public executions to traitors because there was a a brutality, a repressiveness. And in the same way, the Romans had a public brutality, public crucifixion. So when Jesus said, take up your cross, he is speaking to people who in their cities might see on any given day, they might be walking from their village into the local town to buy something at a market, and on their way, they see somebody they know hung up on a tree with nails in their hands and their feet. This is a well-known idea to Jesus' audience. Take up your cross. Let's read together. Remember that last week we studied where Jesus' disciples have now openly said, we believe that you, Jesus, are the Messiah. And now he's beginning to teach them. And it says in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, the Son of Man is a title for the Messiah, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have the things, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely humans. The Christian story is this God fights for people. We put our notes for the sermon in the link in the chat. We do that so visual learners can read along and tactile learners can write along. And if you're filling in your notes this morning, you can fill in this. The Christian story is not about us. The Christian story is not about us. You're in it, 
we have a role to play, but we are not the heroes. The Christian story is not about us. It is about Jesus. The Christian story is about Jesus. He is the hero. And anytime you read your Bible, anytime you pray, anytime you try or I try to live as a Christian without the understanding that Jesus is the hero of the story, at some level we will be off base. The Christian story is how God contends with people who hate him. Jesus came. He healed the sick. He lifted the shame from people. He lifted the stigma from people. He interacted with those that society had cast away. And they killed him. God contends with people who hate him because he loves them. God contends with people who hate them because he loves them. You and I, who are Christians, were once enemies of God. That's why we don't ever dare be prideful about our salvation, because we know that we were enemies of God and we are only here because of the mercy of God. Your neighbor, if they're not in Christ, they hate Jesus. Your relatives, your best friend, the kid you went to fifth grade with, that annoying person that works two cubicles down from you, they might hate God, but God loves them. God values them. The Christian story is about God contending with people who hate him because he loves them. Because he loves them. And here we see two instances of God engaging with people. First is that he engages with groups. Verses 31 and 32, he says that he must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed. But who killed Jesus? It was not the Jews. The Romans actually did the deed. The Romans killed Jesus. The Gentiles killed Jesus. Were the Jewish leaders involved? Absolutely. But here are groups of people that God is contending with. Does God wrestle with a nation? Yes, I believe he does. Does God wrestle with a group of people? Yes, I believe he does. God engages groups of people. And I believe groups of people and tribes of people and nations of people can on some level collectively make a choice about God. I do want to pause. This is not the main point of what we're talking about this morning. But I do want to pause and say this. Anti-Semitism and hate, bigotry of any kind has no place in the Christian church, in the Christian faith, and in the Christian heart. It has no place. Does it exist? Yes, we know that's the case. We know that historically, 
parts of what are called the Christian church have led anti-Semitic persecution, inquisitions, programs against God's people, the Jews. has no place in the Christian heart, in the Christian church. This is not a verse that is, should be ever used to justify anti-Semitism. There's no basis for it. Did the Jewish leaders reject Jesus? By and large, yes. There were dissenters. We know Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, eventually Saul of Tarsus. There were dissenters. But as a nation, have they rejected Jesus as the Messiah? Yes. God still has plans for them. That's another part of the Bible. But as individuals, because God deals with groups, but he also deals with individuals. He deals with individuals. Peter goes to Jesus, and he hears Jesus say that he's going to suffer and die. And he says, that can't be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. If, if Jesus wrestles with groups, he also wrestles with individuals. He wrestled with you and with me, that we were distant from God. We were God's enemies, and yet Jesus in his love took enemies like me and made us his friends. And out of even groups of people that reject Jesus as a whole, Individuals come up. Your whole family could reject Jesus, and that doesn't change what's happened in your life. Our whole nation could reject Jesus, and that doesn't change what's happened in our church. God is wrestling with people. Even though we hate God, we don't want to listen to Him, He loves us, and so He comes after us. There is nothing that you have done that will keep you from the love of God. There's nothing. When Saul, who was one of the Jewish leaders, after Jesus rose again and ascended into heaven, Saul went around throwing Christians in jail, having Christians beaten, having Christians killed. He was on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus so that he could imprison and beat and kill more Christians. And Jesus miraculously, divinely stopped him on the middle of the road and said, why are you persecuting me? Because he will wrestle with even those who hate him the most because he loves them. Who's the person that you hate the most in this world? Well, I don't hate anybody. Eh, okay. Who's the person you hate most in this world? It might not even be somebody you know. It might be somebody, a politician, a leader, a sports player, A-Rod. Yeah. The, 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 uh, you know, whatever this is, God loves them. God loves them. God loves people that hate him. God loves the people that hate you. God loves the people that I hate. 
And if God loves the people that I hate, then I need my heart changed around so that I can have the same heart. Otherwise, Jesus might say to Adam, get behind me, you are being like Satan. If I don't have my mind on the things that God cares about, if I don't have my mind on the things that God cares about, then I could be unintentionally acting satanic. When we say this word satanic, we think of like evil, you know. I need an old priest and a young priest. And then there's a head spinning around and, and scary, right? But to walk in darkness is not like a movie. To walk in darkness means that I don't have my heart in line with God's heart. And if I don't have the love of God the way that God does for people, then in that sense, I need to change because I'm not walking in the light as I should. The story of the Christian faith is God contending with people and for people because he loves people. The journey of the Christian faith is this. Let's read on. Verse 34. So remember, he's just been speaking to the disciples. Now he calls the crowd together, verse 34, along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. The Christian journey is God calling us to follow him. The Christian journey is God calling us to follow him, to take up our cross. He says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, what does that mean? Recently, in fact, well, recently, it was last January. So we're getting up on six months ago. I guess it wasn't that recent. Time's blurring, right? Do you know what day it is? It's Sunday. I think. It's actually weird because I'm recording this on Wednesday. But, you know, you start to lose track of what day it is. Is it Sunday? Is it Tuesday? We don't know. But six months ago, in January, uh, I had school. I'm working on a, a master's. And so I, I, I was at school, and we had a um, group project sort of thing, and we were talking about discipleship. And a majority of the people in that group were complaining and bemoaning that they had never been discipled. And my friend, uh, Pastor Josh, who's the youth pastor over at Valley View Evangelical in Happy Valley, he, he's in the class too, and, and Josh said, well, here's the definition of disciple, and it doesn't sound like what you're talking about. Discipleship is this. This is uh, from Baker's Bible Dictionary. Someone who follows another person 
or a, a way, you know, a way of life, uh, um, a religious order. Someone who follows another person or a way of life who submits themselves to the discipline or teaching of that person or way. Someone who submits themselves to the discipline or teaching of that person or way. If you're filling in your notes, discipleship is not mentoring. Discipleship is not mentoring. I am thankful for the godly mentors in my life. Some have been more official mentors and some have been very unofficial mentors. I'm thankful for Mike and Yvonne Murray who taught me so much, not just how to work at a church and to to be a pastor, but they taught me about family life and um, raising children. And there's so many things that, that I live with in my life today, being a husband and a father that came from those two godly Canadians. They were mentors to me. That's not the same as discipleship, though. Discipleship is replication. Mentoring is is good advice when it boils down to it. I don't mean to belittle mentoring or coaching. I'm all for it. But if I want to get better at something, I, I might get a mentor. I might get somebody to give me some advice. Hey, can you walk me through this? I would like to grow in this area of my life. I want to get better at you know, being a gardener. So you find out who's a person I know that's really good at gardening, and you pepper them with questions and texts, and maybe you take them out you know, pre-COVID, right? You take them out for lunch or coffee or something. You, you do what you got to do to be connected with them so that you can get advice. That's mentoring. Discipleship would be if you did everything like they did. They always plant their roses on the north side of their property, so I'm going to plant the roses on my north side of my property. They always plant on the second Tuesday of every April, so I will do the same. It is replication. When, When Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciples, he's not saying if anyone wants to be a fan. If anyone wants to show up and be a spectator, if anyone wants to show up and go, hey, that's pretty good, I might, I might steal an idea here or there. He's talking about if anyone wants to replicate Jesus in themselves, this is the cost. To be a disciple of Jesus is not just being mentored or being a fan or, or liking an ideal, but it's to have Jesus replicated in us. How do we do that? He says, if you want to be my disciple, you must take up your, sorry, he says, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Verse 34 is a hard verse. If you want to be my disciple, you've got to die. That's a hard verse, but verses 35 through 37 give you the reason. It's counterintuitive, but you have to lose your life to save it. What Jesus is saying is that the people who do not want to be his disciples want to live their own life, their own way, by their own rules. 
And he says, in the end, that will lead to your death. And he means eternal. All of us die. But to live eternally, that's what he means by lose your life. Of the 12 disciples present, 10 of them would die for their faith in Jesus. Some were crucified. Some were beaten to death. Tradition says that one was dragged through town by a horse. Another was run through with spears. John, who did not die for his faith in Jesus, was imprisoned, was tortured. This was the cost of following Jesus in this world. But the reward was worth it. Jesus said, what good does it do to gain the whole world but lose your soul? What, gain, what good does it do to gain the whole world but lose your soul? You could achieve everything in this life. You could have fame, you could have money, you could have popularity, you could have success. Whatever it is that you want, because ultimately success looks different for each one of us. But you could have everything that you want, get it all, and then when you die, you have nothing. You have nothing. You hear story after story after story about people who were at the top of the world, the most successful, the most popular, the richest, whoever, and then their last days, they were miserable because it did not matter in the end. And there are people throughout history who have had nothing, who have died in obscurity, who have suffered, who have been imprisoned, who have been tortured, who have been murdered. And great is their reward in heaven. I've spoken a bit the last few weeks about casual Christianity. And that's been because this is what this part of the Bible has been talking about. We cannot be casual. Your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, your family member, if they die in their sins, they spend eternity separate from God, feeling the fullness, the justice, the wrath that their sins deserved. And that my sins deserved too. But Jesus has been gracious. And He wants to be gracious to them. Casual Christianity will kill our children and our grandchildren in their sins. Casual Christianity will let our, our world around us, our neighbors, be perished and lost. And it may kill you too. Because what happens if you're just Jesus' fan? Where is the line between somebody who has a saving faith, somebody who's a true disciple of Jesus, and somebody who's a casual Christian and was just kind of there but not saved? I don't know. 
I know that I am not saved by anything other than the grace of God, and neither are you. I know that there are people who are going to look like they did a lot of things for God, and in the end they're going to say, Jesus, didn't we do all these things for you? And you say, depart from me, I never knew you. And then there's the thief on the cross who did nothing for God, but he had faith in Jesus, and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So I have no idea about the condition of a person's heart. I don't know. But I do know this. I do know this. Jesus in verse 38 says, If anyone is ashamed of me or my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. We can't ignore that. It's there. Jesus said it. If I'm ashamed of him, then I should have no assurance of my salvation. I have great confidence in Jesus. I have great assurance of my salvation, and you should too if you are in Christ. There are two ways to define something, centered and set boundaries. A centered boundary is like this house we lived in when I was in high school. And we had no fence on either side. There was our house, there was the neighbor's house, and there was grass. And where was the dividing line on our property? And it was my job to mow the lawn. So what I tried to do was wait until the neighbor mowed his lawn and then go mow the lawn so I could let him determine where the dividing line was because he was very particular about his lawn and I did not want to creep over with my lawn mowing into his lawn mowing. How did you know if you were on my family's property or my neighbor's property? You didn't, 100%. You just knew the closer to the house you were, the more for sure you were on the property line. We don't know that point. We can't see inside a person's heart. We just know that the closer somebody is to Jesus, the more sure we can be in his work in our lives. What Jesus says here, if anyone is ashamed of me, is the echoing and, and sort of the opposite of Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of salvation. Friends, we can't be ashamed. We have to know that what we believe is true. And it's worth it. Jesus changes lives. Jesus saves us from our sins. Jesus brings us out of death into life, out of darkness into light. And he can do the same for you. He can do the same for the person you hate most in this world. He can do the same for your neighbor, for your son, your daughter, your parents, your grandparents. Jesus can do the same. The Christian message, take up your cross, deny yourself, forsake your life, and follow God. It's the message, if the Christian story is the story of God fighting for people, and if the Christian journey is God's call for us to follow Him, then the Christian message is this, it is the already and then not yet. What do I mean by that? I mean this. If you're filling in your notes, it's this. The kingdom of heaven is here right now, and the kingdom of heaven is coming. Jesus is at work in this world. God is doing things here. God cares about what's going on. 
God cares about those who are in need. God cares to see His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. God wants Faith on Hill and all the churches in this area and all over the world to be embassies of His kingdom. It's here. And it's not yet. It's coming. The kingdoms of this world are passing away. And if we are taking up the banner of the kingdoms of people, it will fail. We stand under the banner of heaven. The kingdom that is here, but it's not yet, and it's coming. There are two kingdoms. The kingdom of humanity says we need to conquer others. Death to our enemies. The kingdom of humanity says that we will conquer others so that we won't be conquered. And if we can be superior, then we will have assurance. But the kingdom of heaven says this, we need to conquer ourselves. If anyone wants to follow Jesus, if anyone wants to be his disciple, have Jesus replicated in their life, they need to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus. The kingdom of heaven doesn't say conquer others. It says we need ourselves conquered. We need to be conquered by God, his love, his grace, his power. Death to our sinful natures. I, I know this. I've been thinking back about things I've learned to do in the last couple months because there are things that I've learned to do in the last couple months that I didn't know how to do before. It was because I had to learn. It's because of a challenge. You may not be comfortable right now and that might be exactly where God wants you because he wants to call you to himself. He wants you to follow him. You may even be saved. You may have all your sins forgiven and, and God's looking at you saying, I have so much more for you. I have so many better things for you. But you need to take up your cross and deny yourself and it's not going to be comfortable for a while. But it'll be better. I don't know where that leaves you. I know this, if you do not feel that you are part of the kingdom of heaven, if you know that you have not taken up your cross to follow Jesus, if you know that God has been wrestling with you and contending for you, but you're not there, the invitation is today to follow Jesus, to take up your cross, to live in his power, and life. Won't I have to give up a bunch of things? Yeah, maybe. And it'll be worth it. If you are in Christ, God still has plans for us and He wants to bring us deeper and fuller into more and more of His unsearchable riches. God's speaking to all of us. And this morning, the question is, what do we need to respond? The first and most important thing is to respond in faith and say, Jesus is Lord and I am not. God, I am sorry for all that I have done against you. I am sorry for my selfishness. 
I am sorry for my bitterness. I am sorry for my racism and my bigotry. I am sorry that I have not wanted to follow your ways. I am sorry for my immorality. Thank you that Jesus died and took the punishment for my sins and that he rose again to give me new life. And please put that new life in me. Help me to deny myself, take up my cross and follow you. And you can respond to Jesus through prayer. Maybe as the music's playing, you just, with whoever you're with, you just pray out loud. Maybe you pray silently in your heart. Maybe you in the chat just say, can someone pray for me? We'd love to do that. Where else are you going to be told you can, you can text in church? Text out those prayers. We respond through giving. And we encourage anyone and everyone to find a way to be generous with the resources God has given them. Everything that we have is from God. And quite honestly, we, we have a hard time denying ourselves taking up our cross and following God, often with our resources. I can sing, I can pray, but God wants me to give. We're not here for your money. I know that that's a stigma that some have about the church. We're not here to take from you. We're encouraging anyone and everyone to be generous and give as God leads them. And for those of us that this is our church family, this is a way that we worship God with our resources and we support the work that God is doing through the generous giving back of what God has given to us. And finally, we worship. Maybe this morning, in a step of faith, you just need to sing out and praise God. and Raise your voice and raise your hands and just in freedom, give God thanks and praise as we respond together this morning.